9 o'clock service? Has anyone ever come to that 9 o'clock service here? Neb preaches at that one too. And man, um, it's a different crew. But they were giving me grief because they said, hey, look, uh, Pastor Robbie, you better, uh, you better bring it because Neb brings it. So uh, anyway, it's a joy to be with y'all. I know Neb is in uh, Sacktown, and uh, he and I have become friends through a breakfast of some other church planters in the Richardson, Garland, uh, Dallas area. And um, it's kind of funny because our breakfast, man, I don't know, when, when we get together, people are looking at us like, what is happening at that table? Because, I mean, you know, Neb has, uh, Neb has a, a slightly different background than my own. And uh, there's a Korean pastor that meets with us and an Indian pastor that meets with us. And all of us are trying to figure out here in this city, just like we were singing, um, what does it mean for God's kingdom to come? And I think Dallas is an amazing place to be. I think God is doing something amazing among... Oh, we just lost you. I think he's doing something amazing among the nations. Um, I think, actually, I want to learn, and I want to be part of it. And so, anyway, Neb and I have developed this friendship, and um, it's a joy to be with you guys. If you have a Bible with you today, on your, maybe on your phone, or I don't see one in the back of those chairs, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16. Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 16. So try to find your way there. And I'm going to be using the ESV version, um, but that's, you know, you can use any version. And, uh, oh, good, there it is on the screen, too. Hey, good. Before we read this together, though, I want to ask you a question. And it's always really important, I think, to kind of frame the posture of our hearts before we come to a text. You know, it's tough to just kind of dive in parachute into a text on Sunday morning, and you're like, man, what, what is happening here? Uh, let me give you a little context. And this is the question I want you to ask before we read this passage. When was the last time you felt spiritually dejected, spiritually low, spiritually empty, spiritually struggling? When was the last time you, you felt that way? I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Some of you may be there right now. If you're not, praise God. But I promise you, you have somebody in your life who is. And so this text actually is addressed to people who are in that place. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written to uh, followers of Jesus who have embraced him but it has been a struggle, and it's not been easy. Their lives have not gotten better. In fact, you see this over and over again in the book of Hebrews. The writer says, don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't shrink away. Keep pressing on. And the real question is, well, great, but how? Why? And that's what our text is going to address. So let me read this for us and... Um, and we can dive in. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's, that's a little bit unexpected. But here is how it ends. I love this. For people who speak thus, make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let me uh, invite you to pray with me, and, um, and we'll dive in. Oh, Father, you know everything. You know what is inside of our hearts, the turmoil that's there, the intentions that are there, the desires and the hungers. You see it all. And none of the, the bad stuff surprises you, and none of the good stuff earns your love. You see all of us, and you love us completely through your Son, Jesus. And we pray that you would speak to us now through your Spirit. Convince us that these things are true, and help us build our lives on them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to move this mic back a little bit. I think you kind of hear a little bit of jostling for me. Um, All right. Before we dive in. I have a question for you. How many of you have uh, recently moved or are getting ready to make a move? Uh, you, can, you can raise your hand or kind of give me a little indicator. Looking for roommates. Um, you know, that's always a fun situation, trying to figure out uh, changing homes, uh, looking for a new apartment, maybe for the newlywed. Woo! Y'all, got, y'all are looking for a new, a new place. You probably got some new, maybe got some new dishes. Um, here's my question. What is it when you're looking for that new place, trying to, trying to make that, the new home your own? What is like the thing that brings it all together? What, what is that thing, that item? Uh, maybe it's a household item. Maybe it's like you got your smoothie blender or um, your, your special carpet. I don't know, uh, a plant. What is it for you? I would argue, I think the most important item in the house is the dinner table. I don't know what you'd say, but no, okay, we're, we're trying it out. Um, so I, I want you to think about the dinner table. I want you to think about your dinner table, the one that you have in your house now. And I want you to imagine, I come to you and I say, hey, good news, guess what? I have got a beautiful new table that I want, I want you to have. I want you to have this new table you can put it in your house. This is going to be yours. All of the, you know, the vision of your, your friends coming over for the dinner party. Like, yeah, on that table. That is what I would like to give you. But there's a condition. And the condition is you have to make that table your very own. You have to make it like your signature table. 
And the only way that I'm going to give you this table is if you, as if you promise me that you are going to take uh, a knife or um, like a wood chisel or something, and you are going to make that table your own by carving something into the table. You're going to put your signature on that table. You're going to etch something on that table. Now, here's my question. What would you put on the table? What would you carve? I've just given you this beautiful, nice table, or an antique, if you're into antiques. But I'm giving you this nice table, but now I'm asking you to etch something into it to make it your own. What would you put on your table? Um, That's really sweet. Uh, we had some friends, Kelly and I had some friends in St. Louis when we were in seminary, and they had a very interesting dining table. Never seen another dining table like this. Uh, their dining table was this table that I'm telling you about. They had carved into it all kinds of little things that showed them and reminded them who they were and where they'd come from. They had uh, phrases from their dating years, and they had names of people and places and travels that, that they loved. They had um, someone, I, I don't know who, but had etched some little pictures into that table. But the thing that really would grab your attention, if we all went to their house and had a meal at their table, was right in the middle of it, carved in huge letters, this phrase. It said, always homeless. In the middle of the table, centerpiece, huge letters, always homeless. Now, when I ask you, what would you put into your table? I don't know about you, but I know I am not right thinking always homeless is going to be the thing in the middle of my table. I'm not sure that's what I'm going to choose. Like, I, maybe you'd put a Bible verse or um, I w- it would be interesting to have that conversation. What would, what would go there? But I, we ask our friends, like what, like, what is this? What does this mean? And they said, you know, we want to focus on the main thing that matters. Uh, I saw my sister here who was singing up here had the shirt that said home on it with, uh, yeah, what was, what was the O in the shape of Ethiopia? I mean, that, we want to focus our, our vision and our orientation towards the place that God has called us. Uh, we want our lives to be directed to him. That's what always homeless meant for them. And I wonder what you would put on it, on on your table. You see, always homeless, that phrase is written all over this passage in Hebrews 11. I would say it's all over the book of Hebrews. I would say it's all over the Bible. God has made us a people who are sojourners, who are seeking the place of rest, like we were singing, the place of fellowship. And that's what this passage is in Hebrews, is all about. Um, Wish we could read the whole chapter. Encourage you to do that. It's actually a very famous chapter in the Bible uh, called the Hall of Faith. And basically, as the people who are following Christ, who've said, Lord, I want to follow you. I believe you're the Messiah. I want to follow you. As those people are encountering opposition and resistance and struggle, um, the way that the writer of Hebrews encourages them and spurs them on is to remember what their ultimate destination is. Their ultimate destination is Jesus, and Jesus is better than any other destination. He's better than any other alternative. That word, better, 
it occurs over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. It's actually pretty cool. Like the, the writer is pretty, he's, he's almost like giving us all these different comparisons. Like, yeah, you think, uh, you think f- uh, living f- by your own, your own effort is, is going to get you where, where you want to go? No, Jesus is much, much better. You think uh, keeping the rules perfectly, following every uh, little, little part of the old covenant is going to bring you peace? No. Jesus is much better. And that's the, that's the argument that he's making over and over again. But that, I don't know how that strikes you. If I just say, hey, what, how, what are you struggling with right now? Jesus is better. It, it is good, but part of our heart still resists. We have to be convinced. And that's what leads the writer at the very beginning of chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews, to say, Look, we have been invited to walk by faith, not by sight. We've been, and, and then he defines, it's a very famous description of what is faith. And he says, faith is um, the, the, the longing, the expectation of things hoped for with the substance of what is unseen. So that is a really confusing way to live your life. <laughs> Are you going to build your life on something that's unseen, something hoped for? I love the songs. I love the way we were worshiping earlier because you can feel the longing and the desire. But what does that land on? What is the substance of all that desire? And the writer of Hebrews says, look, I'm going to take you back. I'm going to show you the lives of Abel. I'm going to show you the lives of Enoch and of Abraham and of Moses and of David and I don't have to, and he says, I don't even have time to tell you about Samuel and all the kings. But, but we are people, anyone who receives Christ has been invited to live their life by faith, pursuing the better country, as it says here. So um, as you think about that, it's not an easy invitation, actually. It's not, and, and most everything in our world operates according to the exact opposite says, show me, show me and I'll, and I'll come. You know, it's like mathematics. It's not, you don't, there's no, there's no faith in math. Uh, there's no faith in um, something that's clearly evident. But, but God is wanting us to see in this passage the substance of faith. And the substance is what we're going to get into, this better invitation. Um, first, we're going to look at something better for Abraham and Sarah. And then we're going to look at the something better that's for us. And, I, and if we see that, if we believe these promises, these things that are claimed in Hebrews, then we will see that what God is actually inviting us to live by is he's inviting us to live with an expectation for big things and a desire for better things. An expectation for big things and a desire for better things. So, let me, let me look with you at first at um, Abraham and Sarah. And uh, if you want to, I don't know if we can follow along, but let's, let's give this a whirl. Um, we're going to look first at that first um, section, uh, verses 8 to 13. And, and I want you to see that Abraham and Sarah expected big things from God. They expected big things. So verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So you don't have to raise your hand, but just in your heart. How many of you feel like that kind of describes you? 
really sure where I'm going, God. I'm not really sure where this leads. Good. You're in good company, okay? Um, This is the story of Abraham and Sarah. It's the story of God's people. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, and he makes three big promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. I want you, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a great name uh, for you, and I'm going to give you children, and through your children, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, those are pretty big promises. He does, God doesn't make those promises to me and you. He made them to Abraham specifically then and there, but how would you have responded if you were in his shoes? That's the question. Um, okay, pop quiz. Who knows where Abraham is from? Do you remember his, where he was born, the name of his hometown? Ur, come on, that's what I'm talking about. Abraham is from Ur, the city called Ur of the Chaldeans. And basically that's in modern day Iraq. Abraham is, I love telling our um, ESL students this, I say, guys, you know Abraham is an Iraqi. That's not, we don't think that. But Abraham was from Ur. And then he had journeyed with his family uh, along the great river system of Mesopotamia. And he had ended up in, now here's an even tougher one. Do you know where he was when he received the call from God? What city was he living in? Haran. So Haran is in modern-day northern Syria, almost like the Syria and Turkey border. And so basically, here's an Iraqi living in Syria who meets God. He meets the living God, and God calls him and says, dude, pick up your family and go to the place that I'm going to show you. Now, that's a pretty sobering um, invitation on its own, but here's something else you need to know about Abraham. Do you know that he was the eldest in his family. He was the firstborn. And um, I don't know, maybe you have some better familiarity with this than I do, but in an agricultural setting, in a, in a, uh, where, where livestock are valued in a way that they're not here, for him and his family as the eldest son to receive that call meant that he was going to have to step away from all that stuff, from his established life, to go and do exactly what? What's he going to do on this call? What's he supposed to find? So he has been called to go out to the place that the, that the Lord is going to show him. And it says in verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So his kids, his sons, are also heirs to this same promise. This, we would call this a covenant that God makes with his people. God always makes promises to his people, and he always fulfills them. But there's tension between that promise and the fulfillment. So um, Abraham takes his, do you know how this conversation would go? Okay, newlyweds. Um, sorry, guys, I don't, I'm not trying to pick on you. But um, hey, we're about to build our life here. And we think, but actually, I've been, I've been feeling a call to, um, I've been feeling a call to Wisconsin. Like that, that's kind of what, <laughs> Or I'm feeling a call to, I don't know, just a place that you never would have expected to end up. Abraham and Sarah are having this conversation. And Sarah, what is Sarah's comeback? Okay, what exactly are, like, what are we going to do there? Do you, where exactly again? And what does Abraham have to say? I met the living God and he told me and he's going to show me when I get there. 
that's, a, that's, I mean, it's a sobering thing to re- truly walk by faith, to hear, to clearly hear the promise and then to act on it. But they go, don't they? They, they go by faith. And so um, Sarah has a really interesting part in this, in this whole covenant as well. What is her part? Um, oh, well, let me, before we get to her part, what we do know from this passage is the motivation. The motivation that, that enables you or I to keep following Christ when it's hard or to keep trusting when we don't feel like we have the, uh, the, the strength to do it. Abraham is called to follow these promises and to follow the call that God has given him. And what's his motivation? That's in verse 10. It says, um, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And you, don't, you can't quite see this when you're reading this in the English, but if, if we were all Greek spe- speakers, when it says he was looking forward, it's actually saying he was, he was trying to get his hands on. It wasn't like, like, oh, this would be nice if I had a nice little ranch out in uh, Canaan. He's, Abraham is actively trying to get his hands on the things that God has promised. So he's looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now here's where Sarah comes into the picture in verse 11. Sarah herself, by faith, received power. Power to conceive. Who knows how old Sarah was when God made this promise to her? 75. That's right. So she is 75, and as the text says, past the age, right? Um, Past the childbearing age. So first she gets this promise. Do you know how long it is for her and Abraham before this child of promise is born? How old was she when, when Isaac was born? 99. So she lived, they lived for 25 years, 24 years waiting for God to fulfill this promise. And the question I have for you, now sometimes we can do this when we look back at the Bible and we look at some of the heroes of the faith, uh, some of the, especially in the Old Testament, we can kind of look at them as these exemplars like, man, these people are legends and they're perfect. I can never live that way. But were Abraham and Sarah perfect? What did Abraham do when they went to Egypt? And he said, wife, um, we're in a strange land, and uh, here's how it's going to go. I want you to pretend to be what? My, my sister. And uh, that way it will go well with me, with, with Pharaoh. Um, so Abraham, is he walking by faith or by sight when he is... He's taking those, he, he's relying on his own wisdom and his own shrewdness and his own sense of how it's got to go. And that's the temptation very often for us. God, I, I know you've called me to this, but let me, let, let me kind of see how I can make it work on my terms. That's, do you know how many times Abraham did that? Twice. He actually, his own wife, he said, she's my sister. <laughs> he did that on two different occasions. So Abraham is not perfect. Abraham struggles like you and I do. How about Sarah? Sarah got this promise, age 75. Great, we're good. What did, how, how did Sarah try to take matters into her own hands? With this, particularly with the child, the child that was promised to her husband. She said, uh, husband, here is my maid, my servant. And that's Hagar. 
And that was about 13 years. They've been waiting about 13 years for this child of promise. And you remember the name of the child that was born? Ishmael. So does Sarah, this, does Sarah do it perfectly? We don't do it perfectly. And that's good news. It's good news because it's not about my faithfulness or your faithfulness. It's about God's. God is not going to stop working all things for good. And he's not going to withdraw from the people that he's called. You can take that to the bank. So that's what Sarah um, and, and Abraham, that's, that's their lives. But what's really interesting now is in verse 13. Because we look at that and we're like, man, they, they, they had an amazing life. They did it. But look what verse 13 says. It has a different spin on it. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So, did they receive the things that were promised to them? What would you say? Land, children, blessing to the nations? Yes and no, right? It's a little, a little bit, but not totally. Like, they, Isaac was born, and uh, Jacob was born to him, and so... They're seeing the substance of the things that were promised. They're starting to be fulfilled, but not totally, and not with the fullness that we see later. Not with that kind of fullness. It's not until Jesus comes on the scene 2,000 years later who comes up, and he's going he's gonna to help us sort out this, this tension that they feel and that we feel. Here's what Jesus does. Um, John 8, Jesus has showed up on the scene, and he's saying, guys, guess what? All those promises, all the, the, the covenants, um, remember what he promised to King David? One of your children is going to be born, and they're going to sit on the throne that's never going to end. And so Israel lived with that promise for a thousand years before Jesus came. Promise fulfillment, the tension in between. When Jesus finally comes, he says, guess what? It's me. It was all pointing to me. And what do the people do when they, when they see it, when they hear him? Do the people receive it? Well, some do. But the Pharisees, the people who should have been the most ready to receive their Messiah, they turn away. And so this is the scene in John 8 when Jesus is in the temple and he's engaging, he's engaging the Pharisees. Um, Jesus tells them, if I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, that's a big promise um, that for the people then, but it's also a big promise for us. If anyone keeps my word, he will not taste death. That's what Jesus is, is offering us. That expectation for bigger things, that's what Jesus is offering for us. But listen to how the Pharisees responded to him. The Jews said to him, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? You see, they're actually thinking about the same thing that this writer of Hebrews is thinking about, saying, how is it that God makes these promises, and while we're waiting for them to be fulfilled, like, how do we, how do we live in that gap? And they said, are you Messiah? You're the one that is, is going to be greater than our father Abraham? 
And Jesus said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus was telling the people of his day, 2,000 years after Abraham and Sarah, guys, it's me. The faith that it required for Abraham and Sarah to leave their home, to set out, path unknown, not knowing where they're going, looking for the city that's promised, the things that are promised, the better um, fellowship and the better life that's promised. You see, Abraham and Sarah sunk their teeth into me. That's the substance. Jesus is interpreting it for the people. He's interpreting it for us too. We're 2,000 years after Jesus, aren't we? So we look back to him and we can see he is the substance of the promises. He is the reason and the motivation and the power. Because remember, Sarah conceived, and that was power. He is the power to actually live by faith. Not our own strength. Not our own wisdom. Um, you know that AA has a great expression um, that says, uh, if you find yourself in AA, it's your best thinking that got you here, <laughs> right? How far can we, how, how much are we going to build on our own wisdom and our own lives? On our, let's get something much, much bigger. We should expect bigger things. That's the, that's the lesson from Abraham and Sarah. But it's not just that we should expect bigger things. It's also that we should desire better things. Expect bigger things but this passage really wants us to ask the deep, deep question in our heart. What do you want? Like at the, at the base, like most fundamentally, what do you want? Do you know how you would know what you want? It's the answer to the question I asked you before. What is the thing that you would carve into the centerpiece of your table? That's the thing that all your friends come over. That's the, that's the place you're going to start your conversation around so tell me what this means. Whatever you would carve into the centerpiece of your heart, that's what you want the most. That's what you desire the most. Now, um, I'm sure all of us at church or in a Sunday school class would, would, would know the right thing to say, but I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in functionally how you live uh, Monday to Saturday what is the thing that's operating on you, that is driving you, that your heart is oriented towards, that, you're, that this is the city that you're going towards? Um, maybe it's people's approval. Maybe it's career success. Maybe it's satisfying the unspoken or spoken demands of your family. There's all kinds of things that our hearts will fill and, and try to put in place of this desire for a better country, this desire for a better fellowship. We are really good at filling up our hearts with everything but this. But if you've, if you've tasted the kingdom, if you've tasted fellowship, you know, a lot of the people who've started following Jesus, they didn't have a whole lot else going for them. So they could see a whole lot more easily than the people who had it all. And so when he came on the scene and he said, come to me all who are weary and hungry and I will give you rest, who followed him? 
It was the outcasts, the people at the margins, the people who were not so wedded to their own small kingdom that they, that they were going to miss out on this better thing. And so Jesus invites us to come and feast with him at his table. Um, let me read for you this last section one more time, and, um, and then we'll, we'll uh, wrap up. Verses 14 and following. People who speak this way, or maybe we, for, for our purposes, people who carve a better country, maybe that's what they carve into their table. Always homeless. People who speak this way make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What do you want? What is the thing that you think, if I could get this, if God would just situate this thing and work out this in my life, I could rest. I could, then I would, I kind of get my, let me get my stuff together over here and then I'll give it to God. Jesus is not interested in that. He's saying, I'm offering you everything now. Do you want this? You know, the very first words that Jesus speaks in the gospel of John are, are it's this question. What do you want? What are you seeking? Um, See if you can fill in this phrase for me. It's a, uh, you, you are what you fill in the blank. You are what you eat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what we say. You are what you eat. There is a, uh, an author I like who, uh, he kind of flipped the switch a little bit on that phrase. And he says, actually, you are what you love. You are what you love. You are what you carve into your table. That's how you know what you're after, what your heart is oriented towards. And the place that Jesus wants to bring us is out of all those small little petty things and into the lavish riches of life with him. So much better. So much better than anything else. I know because I've sought a lot of other things and found them to be empty. I hope that this same spirit of always homeless, I hope that that spirit doesn't frighten you. It should actually frighten you a little bit. But I hope that you see that the substance of what is offered and the substance of how God has already made himself known gives you every reason to keep walking by faith, to keep pressing on towards the higher calling, towards the higher city, the city that lasts, the lifestyle that's going to last. We go so many directions trying to satisfy that deep thing. You know, St. Augustine said, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God knows us. He's given us everything. Would you join me in expecting big things from him? Would you join me in desiring better things? I encourage you to not just let that wash over you and then run run off in your own direction, but have a conversation with a friend here about what that is. What does that look like for you? I know we're talking in a little bit of uh, abstract terms, but this this you guys are in such an amazing place, and this church community can really be a place 
you have a lot of friends. Maybe again, this is you. You have so many opportunities to invite people to the feast. Following Christ is not about losing. It's not about doors closing on your lives and opportunities closing on you. It is about come and feast with me for eternity. And that feast is not like way off when and that starts now, just like we sang earlier, heaven fall. That's the city that is already being built among God's people. Praise the Lord. These are mysterious things, but it's an honor and a joy to share that with you all. Let me um, pray for you all, and uh, I think we'll continue to worship. Lord, thank you that um, you love us so much that you are not turned off by our betrayals, by our rebellions, by our pettiness, by our confusion, by our anger, by our sadness. God, you see us in complete um, and completely as we are, and you've loved us completely. You've loved us perfectly. While we were still your enemy, your word says, at the right time you sent your son to make peace, to take us from the ash heap and seat us at your table. Jesus, would we have this spirit of bold courage, uh, this spirit of willing zeal, of expectation, of dependency. God, help us not be afraid to stand out. Help us not be afraid to disappoint man. Help us have our hearts solely set on you. Jesus, would you enable us to come to you? After all, Jesus, you are the one who emptied yourself of everything, becoming nothing, even to the point of death on a cross. And you invite us now to come to you outside the, the walls of the gate. Jesus, would we um, not resist that invitation? Would we taste and see that life with you is better than anything else? We pray all these things in Jesus' perfect holy name. Amen.